0: Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. My name is Amy Gunn, and today I am joined by Megan Crow, who is going to tell us about her recent trial in a rather rural county in Missouri with, wait for it, a win! (laughs) Our last couple of episodes, we have discussed cases that we have tried unsuccessfully. So we wanted to bring you a success story. So Megan, let's start by telling us a little bit about that background of the case.
0: Sure. So this case, it was in New Madrid County, which is almost on the Arkansas border. I think it's about five minutes away from Arkansas. So we were really down in the boot heel of Missouri. It was an auto accident case. Our client was a passenger in a vehicle that was going on an acceleration ramp, a merge ramp onto the highway. There was a truck, a vehicle, a big work truck in front of them who slammed on their brakes in the middle of the acceleration ramp. Basically, we had to include the driver of her vehicle, the husband as a defendant, as well as the driver of the vehicle who slammed on his brakes in front of them. The jury got to assess who they thought was more at fault in that situation. I think the jury got it right for the fault in that case. And yeah, it was a win. Our client had a pretty significant knee injury. She blew out her kneecap. She had a broken patella. She had a few surgeries to fix it. Ultimately, she's doing well, except for some like, Recurring pain and grinding feeling from that bone wearing down. Otherwise, she was doing pretty well. But it was definitely a good, significant injury, and the jury thought so too. When you mentioned, Megan, that it was down by the
1: Arkansas border. How rural are we talking about? What was the population of this county?
0: Very rural. I don't know the exact population of the county, but I can tell you that in Fort Dyer, everyone knew everyone. So there was, you know, three local people involved, our client, the wife, her husband, and then the gentleman in the truck in front of her. And all three of them were born and raised in this small town. We had probably 30 jury members on the veneer panel who either went to school with them or taught them or worked with their brother or something. So, you know, everyone was pretty familiar with each other. So that wasn't really a way that we could even get people off of the jury because it was just kind of a wash at that point. There was only one jury, I think, who had a bad experience with one of the parties involved and he ended up not being on our jury. But other than that, it was interesting. It was my first experience being in a venue small enough that everyone kind of knew each other.
1: I do think that's interesting because normally, as you say, in our normal county, with big populations, if someone on the jury panel even has heard of one of the parties, they're pretty much gone.
0: So how did you handle that in voir dire? Yeah, so the way that we kind of went about it is obviously asking if they knew um and then how, and then whether they had a good impression or a bad impression. Most of the time, it was fairly neutral. It was, oh, I remember him. I don't really have an opinion one way or another, something along those lines. Occasionally, it was like, yeah, I know he's from a good family, or one of the jury members had been coworkers with one of the defendants, and he said that he had a bad taste in his mouth About him, And he was the one that we ended up letting go. But other than that, everyone, you know, kind of indicated they were neutral. One of the follow up questions was, you know, would your friendship with this person or knowledge of this person, would that affect your ability to like, listen to the evidence? And would it sway you? Are you thinking automatically that they're in the right or the wrong one way or another because of what you know about them as a person? And Everyone ended up being, you know, very neutral, at least to the point where the judge let him stay on. And I think that that probably happens often down there because while I was surprised, I was like, oh, don't we need to get these people off? And the judge was kind of like, no, they didn't say anything that, you know, would indicate that they couldn't be fair here. And so he must deal with that issue quite a bit because he didn't seem to think it was a problem.
1: That would be a different mindset to try to overcome because... I would just be worried the whole time whether their experience in math class in 12th grade with this person is still in their mind. But it sounds like everybody was pretty straightforward and honest about their knowledge or relationship with any of the parties And it also sounds like it was pretty diffuse. In other words, people knew the plaintiff, her husband, and the defendant. And a lot of
0: times they knew both. There was someone that had known, you know, our client, and they also knew the defendant and, you know, had decent experiences with both of them. So in that case, that's kind of a wash. Got it. One of the interesting things I thought is my client expressed to me after trial that she was a little bit worried in a small town that people would be talking now about the fact that she technically on paper is suing her husband. And she was kind of expressing to me that, oh, this is a small town. Everyone talks. You know, I'm worried about being judged for this. Do they think it? But by the end of Bordire, I think she was a little bit relieved in her anxiety because we discussed that topic at length in Bordire with the jury panel about their feelings about a husband suing a wife, vice versa. And by the end of that discussion, I think our client saw that a lot of people understood that it was necessary in certain circumstances and didn't have any issue with that. And so I think that kind of relieved some of her anxiety.
1: It's sort of the elephant in the room. If you're suing your husband or your wife or whoever the driver of the car was, doesn't that automatically indicate some sort of insurance is involved?
0: Yes. So we had a couple jury members say that outright. And I was getting a little nervous right. that there was, you know, a potential mistrial issue. Because when we said this case involves a wife and the defendant who she's suing is her husband. Do you have any thoughts about that? And the first person shot up right. their hand and said, it's because of the insurance company. And we're kind of like, oh, uh, we can't really directly address that. But thank you for there's your... There's <laughs> a wink.
1: You're winking. Right. But that's not on the record.
0: A lot of people kind of were pretty vocal and were in agreement with that. And they're like, yeah, I think that's bad because it's just trying to dig more money out of the insurance company. And, you know, so people were talking about it. And I was a little worried every single time someone said the word insurance, because that's not typically something you want to hear or elicit out of a jury. It wasn't something that we were intentionally eliciting, but they were bringing it up. It was clearly on their minds. Definitely an elephant in the room. Did
1: anyone cross a line, so to speak, or was that grounds for sidebars, or what was the defense counsel doing?
0: One of the interesting things about trying this case is that one of the defense attorneys for the driver in front was very passive. He wasn't very argumentative. He didn't raise hardly any objections. And so I think with a different opposing counsel, it would have been real fodder for more arguments and issues. But I think just luck of the draw, who this defense attorney was, he didn't say anything about it. And so we didn't either. All right. Got it. Well, and
1: that's true, because if there's no objections or motions for mistrial or anything like that,
0: then the judge isn't going to do anything unprovoked. Right. Yeah, but it was an interesting voir dire. We got a lot of people talking about their feelings about husband and wife being on opposite sides of the lawsuit. And that's really where all of really the meat of our discussion was. And after that, all the other issues in the case, so to speak, that you do voir dire on were kind of secondary. And most of our strikes ended up being for the feelings that people had about a wife doing a husband.
1: And I think that's a classic example of getting ahead of the problems in your case in voir dire. You don't want to save that for the jury to first learn during testimony. I think we're all taught, you know, pick out what you're worried about in the case and discuss it in voir dire because if you're worried about it, then that means it could be a problem down the road. So it sounds like
0: you took that very good advice and really used it to your advantage. Yep, that's what we did. It was a really good board experience, I thought. I definitely felt more confident this time than the last time I did it. So where was everybody sitting?
1: I mean, you've got your client and then her husband
0: is also at the next table? There was at our table, just our client, her husband was sitting on the other side of the room, kind of back and away, and then the main... I say the main defendant, the other defendant who we were primarily going after or trying to suggest to the jury that this person was more at fault than the husband. He was more prominent in the courtroom at counsel table. I think the husband was sitting back in a pew. But, you know, moments out of the jury, they would talk to each other. They drove to court in the morning together every day. And it was kind of an interesting experience, but definitely kept it separate during the trial. And then I guess your case consisted of putting on your
1: client. Did you choose to put any of the defendants on in your case?
0: Yes, we did. We put on both of the defendants in our case. So our order of proof, so to speak, was starting out with the husband. He is who we got the story of what happened kind of from start to finish with. He was the witness that we spent the most time with on the stand, explaining, you know, what he was doing, where he was going, how fast he was driving, what the other car in front of him was doing. The theory of negligence against him for this comparative fault type issue was, was he looking back over his shoulder at the oncoming traffic on the highway too much? Was he not looking ahead of him enough? Should he have been able to see this guy breaking before he did? Because he ultimately rear-ended the person in front of him. So the issue is whether he was paying attention enough to what was going on in front of him. So we kind of got that out, and then we moved on to the other defendant then. Let and me then- ask you about... The husband, though. Yeah.
1: Could you also use him as a damage witness for your own client? We
0: did. Okay, Um, so that's
1: unique. Yes, very (laughs)
0: unique. I first did the liability part with him and then it wasn't a ton of damages testimony from him. But I did spend probably five minutes with him at the end saying, how was your wife after? You know, what did you see? Her kneecap was basically in her thigh. It got really dislodged. And um. He expressed, you know, how he was scared. They had two of their children in the backseat and he was really scared for the children. And then once he realized that our client was very badly injured, he started going into kind of dad mode and freaking out. And after that, I talked to him about her recovery and he had to do a lot more around the house than he used to do when our client was kind of down and out for the count after her surgery. And for the next, you know, three months or so, he basically had to do all the cooking, cleaning, childcare because our client couldn't move around And so we talked about that and how he knew that she was super frustrated not to be able to do that because she is the kindest, most family-oriented person. And, you know, she lives for her kids. She lives for maintaining her household. That's what she does. That's her job. And you can tell that she's really passionate about it. And so it was really hard for her to, like, have to take a step out of that part of her life. So we did get some pretty good testimony from the husband about her damages and how this was affecting her based on what he had to do differently after the crash. And it also had the added benefit of
1: really making making him likable Mm -hmm. to the jury. You know, at the end of the day, they were going to have to choose which of the defendants was at fault and they could apportion that fault, right? Right. But I'm just thinking if I'm on the jury and I get past this whole idea that there must be insurance involved and that's why they're suing the husband and that's forgivable and understandable and you are putting him on and he's saying things like I had to do the cooking and cleaning, which normally I would be like, okay, you know, sorry about your luck, buddy. But in this situation, It sounds like it upset her that she wasn't able to do those things. And he was good enough to pick them all up in a way that sounds like made him kind of likeable
0: guy. Absolutely. Yeah. We suggested to the jury in closing arguments that we think that if you find him at fault at all, we think it should be five to 10 percent. Yeah. The jury came back a little bit more than that. They ended up apportioning it at 40 percent. We were trying to downplay his bad guy persona a little yeah. bit.
1: Yeah. Also, it's strange because what you're describing, is particularly in that last testimony of what he did around the house based on his wife's injuries, would be a loss of consortium claim for right. him. But you couldn't do that because he was the defendant. He was the defendant.
0: Yep. <laughs> yeah, that thought definitely crossed our minds. <laughs> I was Uh, like, he's really putting on a case for a loss of consortium claim right now. But uh, But that's okay. We'll just hope
1: they did like him. Okay, so husband dependent goes
0: on, and then what? And then the driver of the truck in front of our client, basically his testimony was interesting because he said the reason that he wanted to stop on this acceleration ramp is because he had in his work truck a toolbox, one of those long metal toolboxes that spans the width of the truck bed. And he was driving with his dad and they were on their way to work. They worked together in construction and the lid of the toolbox popped up Mm -hmm. and the dad noticed it. It didn't make a loud bang or anything. Initially, the driver, the defendant didn't even notice it. The dad said, hey, the toolbox lid came open. Our theory, after looking at the truck data and how he slowed down and just thinking logically about how these things typically happen, we kind of came up with this internal theory that he probably was intending to stop in the middle of the ramp because it wasn't very busy, jump out of the car, slam the lid down, get back in the driver's seat and go like a Chinese fire drill. Mm -hmm. He was saying that he was slowing down because he was going to pull over to find a place to shut it. But the way that the testimony came out, he was saying, you know, I wasn't to the side. All four tires were still in the middle of this lane when I came down to a slow. And I thought that really worked against him. Yeah, um, it does. One of the fun parts and the interesting parts is that he was saying he didn't slow down to a stop. He didn't slam on his brakes. It was a very controlled slowdown. But we had data from the truck that monitors how fast you're going at every given second. And in this case, in I think the span of six seconds, he went from like 46 miles an hour to three miles an hour. Okay, That's a slam on the brakes. Yes, ma'am. And so that was fun to get a cross-examine him with. That was my next question. How did you get that evidence in? You know, opposing counsel in this case was particularly easygoing, and they had turned it over in discovery. They had stipulated to the foundation. He didn't even make an objection when I offered it into evidence. And you presented it to the truck driver. Right. Yeah. So the first time I introduced it is when the truck driver said, I didn't slam on my brakes. I didn't slam on my brakes. And I said, really, you want to rethink about that? Yeah. Because I have, you know, this evidence that says that you went down to three miles an hour from in your 40s within a few seconds. And is this still your testimony that you didn't slam on your brakes? Yeah. Oh. That's how I used it initially.
1: Okay, Because oftentimes I see that only coming in through expert testimony. But in a case like this, a rear-end accident, you really have to decide whether you want to spend the money on that kind of evidence.
0: Yes. So we thought about the fact that we might need an expert to really talk about this data. And then we kind of came to the conclusion that because it wasn't a super high-value case, that an expert in this case probably wasn't worth it if we could just use it to impeach him with. Right. And so we came to the decision that maybe this isn't going to be ultimately admissible into evidence, but we can at least use it to impeach him with. And we ended up being able to get it into evidence. And it was the only thing that the jury asked to see. Ah,
1: because it's was interesting, fun. <laughs> it's a little
0: CSI. Right, and another reason we didn't frankly have an expert is because the defendants disclosed it very late. They didn't turn it over to us for a very long time. We had asked for it initially in discovery, They had given us one, maybe Excel sheet with like, I'm using air quotes here, truck data that really didn't show us what we thought we were looking for or asking for. And then finally, the day of the corporate representative deposition, Uh they came up with this sheet. And
1: how, because that has to be downloaded and there has to be special equipment to download it. So who did that?
0: Was it the state police? No, it wasn't the police. It was the company that manages their fleet of trucks. It didn't sound like it was too taxing to obtain. It sounds like they asked their fleet management company for the data from just like those few minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't very long. It was maybe 20 entries for like the 20 seconds leading up to it. And then, you know, another 20 for like the 20 seconds after. But one line equals one second. It tells you GPS speed, you know, exactly what second it is, and then some GPS coordinates. Got it.
1: All right. And so
0: you had that and if defendant did what
1: you thought he would do, which is deny that he slammed on his brakes, you had it ready to impeach him essentially.
0: Right. I knew he was gonna basically say that he didn't slam on his brakes because he had testified to that effect in his deposition uh, and at which time I didn't have this data yet. Right. He'd never seen it before, but he didn't dispute what was in it. He was basically, you know, if that's what it says, then yeah, but he disagreed with my categorization sure. of that as slamming on his brakes. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> well, let's just, you know, mince words by the right. way. But the jury's like, Yeah I I know what that means.
0: Mm -hmm. My point was when you think about how fast you're going at a crawl in your car, you're usually actually at like 10 miles an hour. Three is basically a dead stop for all intents and purposes. Yeah. My client had been very adamant about that from the start. She was like, I think he was at a stop. I think he was like parked. I think he was at a stop. He wasn't moving. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was like, that's crazy. Right. That's a little much. But three miles an hour, that's basically a stop. It is. All right. So
1: he gets on the stand and this is still in your case Mm -hmm, and he lies and you catch him and you prove that he's a liar. I'm sure he's a nice enough guy, but yet he lies. And then did you
0: involve the police? We did not. There was a police report in this case. We didn't have any police. The only other part of our case that we did was working up the damages. So we had our expert and we did use the corporate representative. We played some of their deposition video in our case because there was a slight vicarious liability issue. There was a slight dispute about whether he was in the course and scope. Oh, I see. Because basically he was on his way to work, not actually working. He was driving from Missouri to Indiana where he had a job that started the next day. So there was a little dispute about whether he was being paid for that day. Ultimately, they kind of rolled over on the vicarious liability because he was using a work truck to get to work. They paid expenses, gas, Mileage. mileage, that kind of stuff. It wasn't too hard of a case to make, and we had the case law on our side in that. There was some good case law out there that demonstrates when you're on your way to work when it counts as vicarious liability or not, and I used the phrasing in that case to Uh, phrase my questions yeah, so that if there was any real argument over it, I would have that at least on my side. ended up really not being a dispute, but we wanted to put on that testimony and be absolutely sure. The reason why it wasn't a dispute is because you did a good job setting it up, and they were like, all right, fine.
1: Yeah. So did the verdict form include the name of the company as opposed to the actual truck driver?
0: It had both. Okay. The way we did it on the verdict line, left justify plaintiff, and then or is in the dead center. And then on the far right side of the page, in kind of one block, we put defendant name and company. Yeah. Okay. And that's helpful Mm because I
1: do still believe that a jury finds it a little bit easier to find against a corporation than, you know, a nice individual liar that he may be. All right, so you've got all that evidence in, and did you have a treating physician or some kind of medical expert as well?
0: We did have a medical expert. We ended up not using her treating because she went to get an IME Uh. after, and so we ended up using the doctor who did the IME.
1: That's a little bit more predictable.
0: Yeah. He laid everything out really well. He gave an opinion about, you know, future surgery that she likely will need because she's already developing some arthritis. And she's young. She's only 35. So like a knee replacement? Yes. Yeah. So he opined that eventually she's probably going to have to have a total knee replacement in that knee due to her young age and already the signs of wear and tear defendants definitely pointed that out in closed, trying to make it look like it was a bad thing that we didn't have the treating doctor there. We only had the expert. And, you know, our comeback to that is he's an expert. Yeah. Or you could have called the treating physician as well if
1: you really thought that physician was going to do
0: anything to help you. Interesting.
1: So the defendant, what did they do?
0: You know, they really put on their whole case in our case. Okay. Um, I was going to say, what's left? There's nothing really left. We took a lot of the heat out of it by calling them in our case. And so, you know, they just did a longer cross. I guess it's really a direct for them right. when we put them on in our case. And, you know, afterwards, they played some additional portions of depositions that had been taken, talked about some records. But other than that, they didn't call any additional live witnesses in their case. Okay. Okay. Did you have any big arguments about jury instructions? No, actually, this was the first case. Again, I keep going back to this passive defense attorney, but he didn't have any converse instructions for me. He really didn't disagree with my instructions at all. I think part of that, though, is it's very different from I just did my first medical malpractice set of jury instructions. And there's a lot more room for creativity in those. For auto accidents, the Missouri approved instructions gives you quite literally everything up. that you need. Mm-hmm. All the theories of negligence are laid out word for word. Which one applies here? Failure to pay attention, stopping in a roadway reserved for moving traffic. Those are all already instructions under the MAI. So we use those. There really wasn't a fight about it. So it sounds like there was no mission of liability
1: by the Correct. defendant. So there was an argument about liability and then what about causation? Did your gal have any pre-existing issues? Did they try to link it up to anything else?
0: No, I think because she was so so young, young, there really wasn't any issues. And usually I would say this is rare for my cases that there wasn't any causation issues. But in this particular instance, I think the injury was so immediate and visible that it would have been, I think, silly to really put up a fight about it. There was definitely a slight argument causation-wise about future medical treatment that may be needed from the expert. But as far as that this surgery and this broken kneecap was caused by this collision, I don't think there was any dispute about that. Her knee basically went into the center console in the collision and she couldn't move her leg immediately after. She couldn't get out of the car or anything. So I don't think that there was any real question that there was causation. At one point in closing arguments, the defense attorney kind of tried to downplay her her injuries or like say that there's lax causation and saying that this was just, oh, he used the term money grab, of uh, which was horrible. And I really liked what I did in a very brief rebuttal, closing argument of like, I cannot believe that he just basically insinuated to you that she's making up these injuries. You saw the photos mm-hmm. of her knee after the collision and after her surgery. You heard from her husband about how bad it was. I mean, there's been what no are we evidence talking about to, the, here?
1: to the contrary. right? Well, I think that's good to call him out on that. It sounds like the jury was probably disbelieving it anyway, but I don't know. I think there's something the jury's kind of like the fight.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. You know, it was pretty transparent. I don't think a jury was buying into it, but I wanted to make it more pronounced about how ridiculous that claim was. Yeah, what a gift
1: that he gave you, really. Right. A (laughs) reason to get fired up.
0: Right. (laughs) Did either defense
1: attorney try to give a different number to the jury other than what you gave? Or were they all just saying, give you nothing?
0: Neither of the defense attorneys suggested a number okay. in their closing arguments. They did suggest different apportionment of fault percentages. Okay. So that was really the only thing we had suggested. I think 90-10, the husband's defense attorney, he did the same. He said at most 10, you know, I think it should be maybe five. I was actually kind of surprised that he did that Mm -hmm. instead of trying to get a zero. zero. Yeah. So that was a little shocking to me that he did that. And then, of course, the other defense attorney said 100 percent fault on the husband. And
1: then ultimately, I think you've already told us that the husband got 40 percent, meaning the truck driver got 60 Mm percent. And what did the jury determine were your client's damages?
0: A hundred thousand dollars. Okay. You know, we definitely asked for more, but in a conservative rural county in Missouri, I was pleased with Absolutely. that number, especially considering that we beat their settlement offer of five thousand dollars. Oh, see, so that's
1: <laughs> that's all that anybody really needs to know. <laughs> five thousand. It was that from which defendant?
0: The other drivers, the truck so not driver, not the husband. The truck wow. driver. Wow. They made an offer of $5,000 to us.
1: Well, again, the gifts keep coming because (laughs) that didn't even make it difficult to decide to go to trial. Oh,
0: absolutely. And we had renewed a demand to them shortly before trial, thinking that, you know, they might reconsider after all the evidence, because that was fairly early in the case. So we had, you know, sent a renewed demand trying to see if we could get this thing done. No response at all. Mm. So... You know, I wasn't mad about that at all because I was excited to go get a trial experience and ended up blowing through that sad offer.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Again, the very best part is is really
0: being validated
1: about the way you looked at the case, the way you felt about the case. Mm -hmm. Are there any appealable issues that you're concerned about? Do you expect the fence just to pay up?
0: I expect them to pay up. I heard immediately after trial about, you know, where do I send this check to? Okay. It was such an interesting and unique trial because it wasn't very combative. The defense attorney barely objected to anything throughout the whole trial. And because of that, I mean, there's really not many preserved things that they could even appeal about. The thing that I would have been most nervous about was all the talk of insurance and Vordire. If anything, I think that's what it would be. But he didn't make a stink about it, so... We didn't either. Both defense attorneys were very nice and pleasant to work with. The attorney representing the husband, he is from that county. Me and the other defense attorney are both from St. Louis. So we're from out of town. So the husband's attorney, he knows these people and he knows the judge and he's very charismatic and he was a character and working with him was very enjoyable and fun. I think the other attorney was more reserved, but, you know, the more charismatic kind of outgoing defense attorney for the husband Didn't object a lot because he was not diametrically opposed to us, our position. Exactly. So he didn't really have the desire or need to do a lot of objections. His position would have been, I'm going to leave it to the other guy. But the other guy didn't do a whole lot. So (laughs) it was interesting. It was bizarre a little bit.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know if that's a commentary on the way these trials should go. In other words, let's get along, let's object where we need to to preserve the record, but the rest is nonsense. Versus, unfortunately, I think what we've become conditioned to which is fight about everything, Mm -hmm. take positions that are difficult to support, and yet (laughs) there's an argument going on. Right. Hiring multiple experts in the same area that takes up days and days of trial. And that's what we're used to, Megan. Yeah. We're used to that. Absolutely.
0: It's an interesting juxtaposition for me because right on the heels of, no pun intended heels, of that trial, (laughs) (laughs) right on the heels of this auto trial, I immediately jumped into a medical malpractice trial. And that was a very contentious case where the lawyers fought about everything and anything. So going from this kind of smooth sailing into that made it more pronounced in hindsight of just how easygoing that first one was. Right. Well, congratulations again for that victory. It
1: sounds like, and I know that you represented your client very well. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom please feel free to contact us at heelsinthecourtroom.law with any questions, comments, or topics. And we'll see you next time. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury Is Out with John Simon, focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today.